Press, a BrainIron.com production. Here's 11 minutes or so of news for today, Monday, January 29th, 2024. After months of demanding legislation to address the ongoing surge of migrants illegally crossing the United States' southern border, House Republicans appear poised to block a plan to address the problem set for passage in the Senate. Following former president and likely 2024 nominee Donald Trump's lead, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson called the deal dead on arrival in the House, while Trump has said that, quote, a border deal now would be another gift to the radical left Democrats, end quote, and he has said that he is happy to take the blame for the failure to pass the law because he believes it will benefit him politically. There is no need for a brief editorial aside here, because the relevant parties have made it explicit on their own. Republicans have spent much of the last four months demanding increased border security and legislation tied to foreign aid, and when presented with what they've asked for, are turning it down in order to inflict political pain on the Biden administration and Democrats. They are saying that there is a crisis of national existential import at the border but that passing a law to begin to address that crisis is unacceptable because it blunts a useful political cudgel in an election year. Three American soldiers were killed and dozens more were injured when an unmanned drone crashed into the living quarters at Tower 22, a U.S. military outpost in Jordan, where some 350 Army and Air Force personnel are stationed. The attack drone arrived at the base at the same time as a returning U.S. drone, apparently allowing it to slip past whatever defenses would have usually been in place and to strike with little to no warning. The Islamic resistance in Iraq, an umbrella group of various Iran-backed militias, claimed responsibility for the attack, though Iran denies any direct involvement. Republicans in Congress have called for a swift and severe response to the attack, singling out Iran for retaliation, and President Joe Biden said in a statement that the United States, quote, will hold all those responsible to account at a time and in a manner of our choosing, end quote. 190 employees of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, known as UNRWA, have been accused of working as Hamas or Islamic Jihad militants, with a dozen specifically named and their roles in the October 7th Hamas attacks in Israel detailed in a report from the Israeli Intelligence Service. The United Nations has fired nine of these employees already, and two of them are reportedly dead, according to the U.N., According to an Israeli intelligence dossier, the details of which have not been independently verified but are presumably damning enough to have forced the UN's decision to fire the employees, the UNRWA workers collaborated with Hamas in various ways, including storing and delivering weapons, coordinating vehicles for the attack, transporting dead Israeli bodies, and in one case, actually participating in an abduction. The U.S. and seven other countries have suspended some aid payments to UNRWA in response, even as the agency, which supports Palestinian refugees scattered throughout the region, has arguably never needed the money more. The U.S. Department of State says that despite the important humanitarian role UNRWA plays in supporting Palestinians in need, they employ 13,000 people in Gaza. The suspension of funding was necessary, while it watches how the U.N. responds to the allegations. 
French farmers have laid siege to Paris with tractors and other slow-moving farming equipment in an attempt to snarl traffic in the French capital and pressure the government to respond to demands that the country's food producers be better compensated. The government mobilized some 15,000 police in and around Paris to attempt to prevent protesters from setting up in the city and encouraged commuters to use public transit when possible. The protesting agricultural workers say that France's farms are being harmed by cheap imports that face fewer regulations and that higher prices for fertilizer and energy caused by the ongoing war in Ukraine and other global financial pressures are destroying their ability to earn a living. Also in France this weekend, two women threw soup at the Leonardo da Vinci painting The Mona Lisa in the Louvre, claiming solidarity with the protesting farmers and expressing upset over the fact that there are hungry people in the world. The Mona Lisa, stoic as ever behind bulletproof glass, was undamaged. In sports, the Kansas City Chiefs defeated the Baltimore Ravens, and the San Francisco 49ers overcame a 17-point halftime deficit to beat the Detroit Lions to advance to Super Bowl 58, to be played on Sunday, February 11th, in Las Vegas, Nevada. The Chiefs are headed to their fourth championship game in the last five years, including a win in last year's game, and they seek to become the first team since the 2004 New England Patriots to win back-to-back Super Bowls. The 49ers will be making their first appearance in the title game since losing to the Chiefs following the 2019 season, and a win will give them a record-tying sixth Super Bowl victory. San Francisco is a slight two-and-a-half-point favorite, according to oddsmakers. In tennis, Yannick Sinner came from two sets behind to defeat Daniel Medvedev at the Australian Open, becoming the first Italian to ever win that Grand Slam event, and handing the Russian Medvedev his fifth loss in six major championship appearances. A brief trivia-based aside, in 2003, Roger Federer won his first Grand Slam title with a victory at Wimbledon. Including that victory, there have been 82 Grand Slam events played since. Federer, or Novak Djokovic, or Rafael Nadal, the so-called Big Three of men's tennis, have won 66 of those tournaments, and at no point since 2004 have fewer than two of the Grand Slams been defended by one of those three men. The upcoming French Open in May marks an opportunity to end this streak. If someone besides Djokovic or Nadal wins the French, then three of the four major titles will currently be held by non-Big Three players for the first time in 20 years. Federer retired in 2022. Nadal has hinted that 2024 could be his last year, and Djokovic turns 37 in May. In golf, Matthew Pavant, a 31-years-old rookie on the PGA Tour this year, became the first Frenchman to secure a win in PGA Tour history when he sank an 8-foot birdie putt on the 18th hole at Torrey Pines South on Saturday to win the Farmers Insurance Open. A brief editorial and historical aside, Jean Vandeveld, and therefore the French, will forever be known for historic collapse in golf and in much else. Vandeveld, 
held a three-stroke lead teeing off on the 72nd and what should have been the final hole of the 1999 British Open, a shot which landed somewhere over by the 17th tee rather than the 18th hole, and after at one point removing his shoes and socks to wade into a water hazard, among other indignities, the Frenchman carded a triple bogey, putting him in a three-way playoff that he did not win. The television broadcast of the slow-motion disaster is on YouTube and linked in the show notes at brainiron.substack.com, and the BBC coverage in particular is as sublime a narration of human failure as I can remember. He's out with a driver now. Now, I'm not sure this is right. He's going to be at least three shots ahead. A six will do. Oh, 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 you lucky little rascal. First tee. Well, you do. I don't believe this. Well, I think really, if anybody needs an advisor, he does. At this, at this moment, can you believe that? Now he's got to pitch up. Of course, if he goes left and it runs, it could go out of bounds. This, this is really... Uh, his golfing brain stopped about ten minutes ago, I think. Well, Van der Velde still has the luxury of uh, four shots. If he gets a six, that's a double burger that'll put him to plus five. Now, where is he going now? He's going out left to the front of the green. Yeah, it must be. I don't believe it. This is... Oh, dear, this is really... This is... Um, this is so, 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 so sad. And so unnecessary. This could end up with a, a playoff between Laurie and Leonard, and he not even involved in it. Well, we've seen a few miscues and mishaps in our golfing careers, but... Oh, Jean, Jean, Jean. Now, what are you doing? What on earth are you doing? No, Jean, please. Would somebody kindly let's go and stop him? Give him a large brandy and mop him down. I mean, it's all going on here. It's most extraordinary. Go thou and do likewise. Now, if this goes in, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pack it in. I'm gonna retire if he holds this. Alex, I mean, it's unbelievable. Peter, there, there are moments of uh, great hilarity, but I have a feeling, I have a funny feeling, it's going to turn to moments of great sadness. This could become very sad indeed. Please give him one good putt. Please. If this Matthew Pavon thinks he's going to overtake Jean Vandeveld for pride of place in my memory of French golfers, he's going to have to find something else to do with that particular baguette. On this day in history, January 29, 1845, the New York Evening Mirror published Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, a poem for which he was paid $9 and which brought him much popular renown. Now, 
a brief dramatic reading of the final two stanzas of Poe's immortal The Raven by the great Christopher Lee. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend. I shrieked, upstarting, get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken, quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting. Still is sitting on the padded bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. The lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. A happy birthday to foreshadowing enthusiast and Russian playwright Anton Chekhov, who was born on this date in 1860 and gave voice to the narrative principle that came to be known as Chekhov's gun, which insists that every element of a story must be necessary and that everything extraneous should be removed. A loaded rifle on the stage in Act 1 must be fired by Act 3, the rule goes, because a writer shouldn't make promises to the audience he doesn't intend to keep. Also born on January 29th in 1964 was Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, Stanley Kubrick's Cold War satire film that adheres to Chekhov's admonition by triggering nuclear Armageddon in its final moments. And, on this date in 2002, President George W. Bush delivered the State of the Union Address to Congress, in which he described Iraq, Iran, and North Korea as the axis of evil, a promise about the scope of the war on terror in Act I that would be narratively satisfied by much of the next 20 years of American foreign policy. Finally, a happy 70th birthday to Oprah Winfrey, and a happy 44th birthday to playing guitar while on the toilet enthusiast and Jerry Seinfeld superfan, John Parrott. Now, here's a look at the weather. The desire of Speaker Mike Johnson and former President Trump and other Republicans to scuttle any border deal rather than hand their political opponents what might be taken as a victory has me thinking about the way the remove created by the modern tools we use to interact with the world has the dual effect of bringing everything closer, of heightening the stakes of things happening far away, at the same time that it makes everything seem like something of a game. This isn't particular to the news about the border, so I'll leave that aside. But I wonder if the internet and the magical supercomputers we carry around in our pockets haven't contributed to a strange distorting effect on our perception of the world, like looking at things through both ends of a telescope at once. It's likely just the evolution of a problem created by television. If it happens on the screen rather than to us, it's not really happening at all, in a way. 
That's not to say that it hasn't impacted our psychological state, which it has, but that the screen demands a response that is only psychological in return. If the medium is the message, where we once received the reality of the world as mediated by print or the television screen, that reality now flows both ways. We don't just gaze into the content maw. We now send our reality back into it in the form of social media posts or even text messages to friends and family or via self-published podcasts and blogs, for example. We are not just taking in a reality algorithmically curated specifically for us. We use the medium of our phones and computers to shape it in return. It makes possible or maybe even likely, a huge rift between what is actually happening and what we are convinced is happening, even as it appears to our brains that we can see everything more clearly than ever before. Like looking at a projection of the world through both ends of the telescope at once. I don't have some sort of pat answer here. These are not complete, coherent thoughts. This is a glance at the passing clouds, so to speak. But it does seem bad or at least potentially quite destabilizing, to have handed to each of us a reality-enhancing and reality-distorting and reality-creation tool all wrapped in one. Perhaps what the age of all possible worlds, of infinite information, is really ushering in is a time of such profound solipsistic individualism that we will end up creating entire bespoke realities impenetrable to anyone else. Realities that command our attention far more than what is actually happening in the world out of focus, just beyond the screen. We've been handed the tools to connect with one another across the vast reaches of time and space and are using them to burrow ever further within. That's the weather from here. How's it look out your window? The Morning Press is a production of the BrainIron.com multinational media empire. Please direct comments and complaints to brainironpodcast at gmail.com. For a transcript of today's episode and links to the stories referenced, find The Morning Press at brainiron.substack.com, where, if you would like to support this and the other podcasting and blogging endeavors of the BrainIron.com media empire, you can also become a paying subscriber. If you can think of anyone else who might enjoy whatever it is we're up to around here, please consider sharing. Thanks, and barring the sudden onset of the inevitable, we'll talk to you tomorrow. The proceeding was created with 100% human content.